Okay, what happened last Wednesday, February 21st? Do you know? Billy Graham stepped into the presence of Jesus less than a week ago. He was 99 years old. And when I think of someone who faithfully kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, kept abiding through the walk of life, Billy Graham is a shiny example of that. He, um, you know, I, how many of you grew up listening to Billy Graham preach on television? Let's start there, Okay. I remember my mom and dad lying in their bed at night, putting Billy Graham on the TV, us crawling into bed with them, listening to Billy Graham preach, and then later went to a crusade. How many of you went to a Billy Graham crusade? How many of you ever were counselors at a Billy Graham crusade? How many of you accepted Christ at a Billy Graham crusade? Wow. What an amazing impact his ministry had. He, do you know that he was the, the voice of the gospel back in a day when we still considered ourselves a Christian nation? You know, when millions of people would tune in to hear him preach the truth about Jesus Christ? And do you know that he preached to more live audiences than any other person in history? He preached to 215 live people, million 215 million live people he preached to, 185 different countries. That doesn't include the books, the TV shows, the, the films uh, that he also reached millions of people through. That was just live audiences. And the thrust of his ministry was so simple. He had one purpose, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to invite people to repent of their sin and invite him by personal invitation into their own hearts. It was so, so simple. And God gave him such a tremendous platform with that message. Um, He preached to millions, but he also gleaned the attention of some very influential people over the course of his time who wanted to listen to what he had to say about Jesus. And you know, he would go into cities and he would set up his crusade tent. He had a tent oftentimes, But he would set up in cities, and he would have a a weekend crusade. But then people would come in such droves because they were so thirsty to hear spiritual gospel good news. That do you know that in 1957, he set up his tent for a crusade in Madison uh, Madison Square Garden in New York City. And people wanted more and more and more of this gospel good news. And so they came back night after night, and that weekend crusade was extended to 16 weeks. For 16 weeks, Billy Graham showed up, and crowds of people came to hear the gospel preached. That's four straight months, night after night. And I I read that fact about him, and my heart sank because it was such a stark reality of how our world has changed. In only 60 years, this is how hard our American heart has grown to the gospel of Christ. We could barely get people to show up for one day, probably today, preaching in Madison Square Garden, not 16 straight weeks. But he shared the good news of gospel with millions. He provided spiritual counsel for presidents of both parties. He emulated the kind of unity that happens in Christ when people are brought together with the one focus and the one faith, no matter their divisions in in politics. 
He was listed in the Gallup poll of the 10 most admired men in the whole world 61 times, 61 years, since 1948. I mean, here's a guy who walked worthy of his calling until the very last day of his life when he stepped into the presence of Jesus. And I am so thankful for the legacy that he left us, aren't you? Well, today, Paul is going to challenge us to live up to the worthiness of our walk in Christ. The baton is in our hands. Billy Graham is with Jesus. And so Paul is going to challenge us to step up with Christ and experience this kind of unity and with God and with other believers. And this, has become, this is how we um, make a powerful witness in our own world by the testimony of our faith that comes through the unity that is possible for us to share as believers. Now, Paul has already been teaching us so much about unity, this kind of unity that's found in Christ. In the first three chapters that we've looked at in Ephesians, he's talked about what it does it mean for us to be unified in Christ, daughters of the King. He's talked a lot about that. He's talked a lot about the unity that happens with Gentiles and Jews now being children with one father. And now he's challenging us to maintain this unity in the body of Christ as believers. And in order to do this, we need to learn how to walk in unity. And so he's going to give us three key, key points that we're going to learn today. He's going to, first of all, challenge us that we have to walk according to our divine calling, which is found in verse 1. Secondly, he's going to tell us that we have to walk in such a way that exemplifies the Christ-like conduct of our lives, and that's found in verses 2 and 3. And then he's going to tell us that we need to walk according to our gospel confession, which is found in verses 4 through 6. So what we're going to learn is that unity happens as we, uh, it will happen naturally as when our lives are lived in step with Christ. So unity happens naturally when our lives are in step with Christ. So let's, let's look at verse 1, first of all. Paul's going to exhort us to maintain unity in the body of Christ. And it's really important that as we begin talking about unity, that we understand that unity is not uniformity. Unity um, is a spiritual grace. It comes from the inside. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, where uniformity is a pressure that comes from the outside that causes everyone to be the same. Unity is a grace that comes from within, and we'll see this as we go through this passage. So Paul begins and he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul is transitioning us from the exposition of chapters 1 through 3 to an exhortation in chapters 4 through 6 with the word, therefore. Now, he's been expounding on the meaning of the gospel, so he's been telling us everything that God has done for us, and now he's transitioning and telling us how we then can respond to God. So in, in essence, we're going from a, a sermon on doctrine to a sermon on duty. This is how we respond to all that Paul has been telling us, and he's telling us that he's, he's saying, um, he's making an emotional plea. He's actually saying, I urge you or I beg you. This is really emotional for Paul, what he's trying to say to us. He has been passionately proclaiming the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ to the Ephesian believers. He's been telling us the truth of 
Jesus Christ, and he's been telling it now to Jews and Gentiles who are now unified into one family, and he knows that people are now one. We are, we are one tribe. We are one people. We are the church, and our testimony as one people is vital to our witness to the world, what the world sees about God's people. And so Paul is begging us. He's saying, this matters that we're one. So walk worthy in a, in a manner, uh, walk in the manner worthy of your calling. When we talk about walk, we're talking about our conduct. We're talking about how we live out our daily lives. To walk is, is to live it. You know, we know it to be true. Now how do we live it? How do we step into our faith? How do we walk each day with Christ? And in a way that others can see that this is what we believe because we're living it out, we're walking it out, we're faithfully applying his word to each day. And why is this so challenging? It seems like it should be so easy, right? We, we've learned all this great stuff about who we are in Christ, and it seems like, well, sure, let's just live that out. But I think in our lives, oftentimes, there's a separation between what we consider sacred and secular, we sometimes hold Sundays out as a sacred day. And on that day, we don't scream and yell at people who are taking too long to get out of the parking lot. <laughs> we take showers and wash our hair on Sunday. We put on, sometimes we put on our nicer clothes. Actually, in the Northwest, we probably don't. We open our Bibles on Sundays. We worship God on Sundays. We pray on Sundays. We gather with God's people on Sundays. We have this day where we assume that, of course, this is our day. This is our day of worship. This is our day of gathering. Or maybe it's Tuesdays where we do this. Um, but Paul is saying that, you know, every day is to be like this. Monday through Saturday and Sunday. Because we don't have a life with God that is filled with um, religious rituals. We have a life with God that is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's personal. God has called us to himself by grace through faith, and he has changed our identity, and he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. I want us to just remember for a moment what those spiritual blessings are that have changed our identity. They're what we looked at so closely in chapter 1. Remember, we are holy and blameless before God, chosen by him to be holy and blameless before him. We are adopted as daughters of the king. We are redeemed. We, are, we have been purchased back out of the slave yard of sin and death. We are bought unto Christ by the blood that he shed on the cross. And we are forgiven of all of our sins. We are unashamed before him, totally forgiven. We have been, it's been revealed to us the mystery of God's plan, which is to unite all things under Christ, Jews and Gentiles, one family under Christ. We have been told that we are actually God's own inheritance because of Christ, and we are sealed with his Holy Spirit. This is our identity. This is who we are in Christ. This is our calling we have been welcomed into his family. We're daughters of the king, sealed by his Holy Spirit. We all share in this oneness. And so we don't live in a secular kingdom anymore. We don't live in that kingdom anymore. We belong to God. We belong to him. And so that's why Paul's saying, I urge you to live out your true identity and calling, no matter what your circumstances are in this world. Because the reality is, this is who you are. 
Now, Paul is speaking to us from the reality of his own walk because he's a prisoner in Rome when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. He was literally chained to a a Roman guard day and night, and he was charged with treason after a riot broke out in Jerusalem, and he was waiting at this time before a tri- to have a trial before Nero. So his fate was still really uncertain. But day and night, he's chained to this guard. And he never, though, considered himself a prisoner of Rome. All along, he knows his identity, he knows his calling, and he says, I am a prisoner for Christ. Paul considers himself actually chained to Christ, linked to God's plans and purposes for his life, right where he's planted, which is not a pleasant place at this time. But still, he was experiencing nearness to the Lord in his circumstances. And even though he was under house arrest, he was preaching to the Roman guards, which ended up then having a tremendous impact in Rome. And he was writing letters to the churches in the region, reminding them of their identity and their calling and us of our identity and our calling. And so Paul knew that he was the Lord's gospel instrument, and he was faithful to walk in this identity, even when his circumstances kept him behind bars. Have you, do you, does Paul, when you look at Paul's faith, does it help you to find courage in whatever circumstances you are in? I just often think of Paul for perspective, (laughs) I think, well, my life is challenging, but it's not like Paul's. I mean, honestly, I've never been shipwrecked. I've never been imprisoned. I've never been stripped naked. I've never had to go hungry. I've never been flogged. I've never had to flee from my life. I've never had to do a lot of those things. But there are things that I do identify with that Paul um, has endured. You know, I have experienced what it it means to have to press through challenging circumstances in life and in ministry when you're really discouraged, when life is really hard. I know what it's like to feel bound up by responsibility or to feel that sense of um, imprisonment sometimes to to caring for others and not being free to do things that I might want to do for myself. I've had to persevere through real temptations and real hardships. And I know that my life isn't unique. Your life is that way too. That's part of what it means to, to live in this world that we live in. But God has called us to himself by grace. And what is that calling exactly? Well, it's a summons. It's an invitation from God to draw near to him through Christ And this is exemplified by the fact that we are holy and blameless before him. Now, we're not holy and blameless because of our own doing, but we're holy and blameless because Christ shed his blood on the cross for our sins, providing complete forgiveness for us so that we can now draw near. God summons us to draw near to him because we're holy and blameless before him because of what Christ has done. And so that is our calling, to draw near to him. Our lives are actually sacred now. They're set apart unto him. We are saints now. We are aligned with all the saints that are written about in Scripture. And Paul reminded us about that in Ephesians 1.12 when he said, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We are to the praise of his glory. We bring God glory with our lives. We who are called to the hope of Christ live in the praise of his glory. And so as we walk worthy of the call to which we've been called, we begin to reflect the character of Christ to the world, and we begin to shine the light of hope 
into the darkness that surrounds us where we live. So our calling not only unites us with God through Christ and unites us to each other through Christ, but we are united to Paul. We're united to all the great men and women of Scripture. We're we're united to all those by faith who've come before us and all those by faith who will come behind us. This is the body of Christ. And so Paul is urging us to walk out this life of faith by his grace. That's our calling. So here's a truth that I'd like for us to ponder for a minute because it's, it's a truth that really, even though I thought of the truth, that convicted my own heart because the truth is this. Our calling is to live as though we believe what we know. It's not that we don't know. We know. But our calling is to live as though we believe what we know. How does your behavior demonstrate what you know and believe about Christ. Because you know that what we believe determines how we behave. My heart always sinks um, when someone who has a powerful public ministry falls into sin and they lose the, the testimony of their voice for Christ. And of course, we know people are fallible. And we know that people who have a voice for Christ are under unspeakable temptation and unspeakable opposition. We know that we can't even imagine what a person goes through when they're given a platform like Billy Graham to speak for Christ. But oh, how I want the men and women of this world who are representing him with their testimony, I want them to run the race. I want them to persevere. I want them to end well. I want them to be a shining example for the fame of Christ and for the reputation of believers around the world. I so want that. And my own prayer for myself is that I will finish well. I want to run the race well myself. I want to, I want to live without scandal. I don't ever want to diminish the, the, the reputation of Christ with my own life by God's grace. And Billy Graham, he was just an ordinary guy. He just was an ordinary young man. Actually, a traveling evangelist came to his town and shared the good news of the gospel, and Billy Graham responded with belief, with faith. He said, yes, I agree, and he became a Christian. And then God put a call on his life to share this good news with others, and he said, yes. And he stepped into that calling, and he did it so faithfully. He lived out what he believed for 99 years. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. His family will testify that he was gone most of the time, and his children missed him. And times were tough in his marriage, and I'm sure times were tough at home. But he was faithful to walk in the calling to which he'd been called. He ran the race with integrity and with excellence and perseverance, and he left a legacy of faith for millions of people. What is the testimony of your life? Do the attitudes and actions of your life align with what you believe? You know, people are watching you. And you know who's watching you the most? Your children, your grandchildren, your husband, your siblings, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, the people that are closest to you. And they will probably never remember anything you ever tell them about Jesus. They may or may not remember what you say, but they are watching your life. They watch you live out the reality of what you believe when times are hard, 
They watch you. They see you praying quietly in the morning or before bed. They see you struggling to, to respond to situations the way Jesus would, to put on some of the attributes that Paul is going to be talking to us about. They're watching your life, and the greatest testimony of your life truly is not ever what you tell people. It's who you are, and that sees through as, as Christ is alive in you. And so we respond to God's calling by believing and living a life of obedience and service to God. And now Paul is going to explain what that looks like in our daily lives. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, who does that sound like? Jesus, doesn't it? That sounds just like Jesus. Humility. Okay, Jesus humbled himself, coming to earth in the, in the mode of a servant, leaving the throne room of heaven. Humility. Jesus was gentle. He said, come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you peace. My, my yoke is gentle, he talks about. He talks about, talk about forbearance and love, went to the cross and bore our sins and suffering so that we could be united with him. And he gives us his spirit, unity, peace. Sounds just like Jesus. So here's the thing. Our calling is to imitate Jesus. Paul mentions now five specific qualities of our lives that are meant to reflect Christ. And so let's talk about those. First, he mentions humility. Humility is essential for unity. And it's because it's hard to have unity when people are full of pride. Pride is very self-focused. And in the Ephesian culture, when Paul was teaching this, humility had a very negative connotation because in that culture, people um, celebrated pride. They celebrated their own pride. They celebrated the pride of others. When they spoke of humility, it was only spoken of as a servant or slave was considered humble. And so the whole meaning of humility, humility didn't actually become a virtue until Jesus came into the world and he was the one who modeled humility. But even in this time, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians who were humble were really looked down upon. That was not seen as a virtue by the world that they were living in. And it's the same today. Today we celebrate um, people, uh, prideful, in pri people's pride is celebrated. Uh, in our world today, self is enthroned, self is pampered, self is central. And so pride is to put self in the center and humility is to put God in the center. You know, as Tim Keller said that, he said, gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's simply thinking of myself less. That's humility. And why am I thinking of myself less? Because I'm thinking of God more. My focus goes on him. God spoke about a view of, one of his views of humility in Isaiah 66 too, when he said, he said, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Where does pride raise its ugly head in your life? Is it at work? Is it at home? How do you respond when someone challenges your competence? Do you get defensive? Do you stand on your entitlements? 
Do you fight back? I have some really sad news for you. All of our lives, we're going to fight the inward pull of the flesh to make ourselves center. It's never going to stop being a battle. It's going to be a battle till the day we step into the presence of Jesus. But we got to stay in the battle. We got to stay fighting self and putting God in the center because that is the essence of truly being humble like Jesus. So the next word is gentleness, can be thought of as meekness. And gentleness is sometimes thought about as being timid, um, but it actually means being self controlled. Moses was considered meek. He was considered the, the meekest man that walked the face of the earth. But Moses was by no means timid. He was a powerful leader, but he, was, um, he yielded himself to God's control. So he was considered humble. He was considered meek. And it's been said, this is a good way to remember it, meekness isn't weakness. It's power under control. So um, especially a leader who can put power under control can be a gentle leader. And so we're gentle when we yield ourselves to God's control. And when we, give, when we give the Lord our emotions, our behaviors, our thoughts, when we allow his spirit to control our responses to other people, then we're gentle. And that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so in order to be gentle, we have to resist the temptation to be harsh. And we have to resist the temptation to lash out in anger, to be unkind, to give over to rage or bitterness or slander. And um, God, as gentle people, we have to resist our impulses to assert our rights. Now, Jesus was a perfect example of someone who was humble and gentle. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Think about how gentle Jesus was, and yet with a single word, he could calm the storms or call demons out of people. And yet he was so gentle that he invited us to, to place our burdens upon him. And he says in Matthew, one of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Patience is another word that we struggle with at times. Patience is the antidote to anger or harshness and is very closely linked to love. Do you know that you can't be really patient without being loving? They go together. Love is what motivates patience. When we love others well, we're patient. Now think about how you react to your children. Don't you find that's the place where any impatience just instantly comes out? Or with your husband? And yet, isn't that the relationship that needs the most love? And so, I, for me, it's a struggle sometimes with my aging mom. I pray for patience, extra patience. And um, it is the people closest to us that bear the brunt of our impatience. And so we have to relinquish our own agendas in order to exhibit patience. And that's hard when we're self-centered. But it becomes a lot easier when we're other-centered. When we're thinking about loving someone else, patience comes a lot easier than we're thinking about moving our own agendas along. But praise God for his patience towards us. Because, you know, it's his patience towards us that leads us to repentance, that brings us into a relationship of faith with him. In Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And in 1 Timothy 1, 16, Paul said, But I received mercy for this reason, 
that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And if we remember last year, the verse we looked at over and over again, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, patience, God is slow to anger so that sinners can come to faith in him. Next is forbearance, which means long-suffering. This means putting up with each other in love. It means enduring discomfort in relationships without fighting back. And this is a grace that cannot be experienced apart from love. We cannot forbear with each other apart from love. And for me, this word speaks of marriage. I think marriage is the place where we learn how to forbear with one another in love. Um, Forbearing means laying down our entitlements, laying down our expectations. Love means seeking the welfare of another person above your own, but there's a mutual tolerance that's necessary for people to live in unity with each other, and that's marriage and that's the church. We need love and a mutual tolerance for each other. They say that if a person doesn't learn how to forbear at home, that that person will never know how to forbear out in community. This is something that has to be learned in the home. Let me ask you a question. How are you forbearing with your spouse? How's that going? Are you fighting for your rights? Or are you bearing with him in love? Are you trusting God to give you the supernatural grace that you need to seek the best for your husband? You know, often I think the place of greatest suffering Um, It has been in my life, in my early years, and it's in countless number of people that I counsel with. It's in the marriage relationship where the greatest, greatest pain in a person's life happens. But I want to say that that our marriages also provide us with the very best opportunity to grow up in Christ-likeness and to experience real unity. And it happens as we learn to be humble and gentle and forbearing and loving and patient. And that unity is the last word. Unity, as we can see, doesn't happen without effort. It takes work, which is why Paul is telling us, I urge you, I beg you to maintain this unity. He's telling us to be, to be zealous for it. It matters. God is the one who creates this unity by his spirit, makes it possible, but we have to work at it. We have to maintain it. We have to protect and preserve it with the spirit's help. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. So when the peace of God rules in our hearts, then we build up unity. It's that inward grace. The Spirit gives us the peace of God, that inward grace that helps us to build unity with people around us. And if we're serious about pursuing unity, we have to repent of passivity and indifference. I think that's something that gets a hold on us. We tend to go limp about it, right? We're like, we write people off or we say, ah, I don't care. But we have to fight for unity. We can't be passive. We can't be indifferent. We can't sleep in separate beds. We can't shut people out. We can't go silent. We have to fight for unity. It matters in our churches, in our families, and in our Christian communities. And it's so worth it. And so here's the truth that I see here, that the God calls us to live in Christ-like community with other believers. God calls us to live in Christ-like community with other believers. That word community, calm, is with and unity. Community literally means with unity. And that's how God calls us to live with each other in community. 
We were created to live this way. I think this is why in our culture, people are struggling with so much unhappiness because of the isolation that's occurring through technology and social media. But I also see this as the prime opportunity for the church, for people to gather in community again, to rub lives with one another, to look in human faces, to hug warm bodies, to share at a deeper level. It's a perfect opportunity for a resurgence of the church. And so it matters that when people come into our churches, when they join our church family, that there is a sense of community and love and peace and forbearance and kindness and patience. It really matters. And of course, we worship a God who exists in community, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He already is community. And he invites us into a relationship with him, and we join in that community with him. That's the model. And then we join with each other in community, and we're the body of Christ. It's the church. And unfortunately, it's our sin and our brokenness that complicates community, Because what sin does is it rips apart, right? It begins with us. It disintegrates our personalities. We become duplicitous. We become hypocritical in our personalities. And so we have that problem, which we need to repent of. But then sin also tears apart our relationships. So we need forgiveness and grace for each other. So Paul is challenging us that we need to fight for this unity by putting on the character of Christ. And the fight begins first here begins first in my own spiritual nature. We have to battle ourselves first and foremost. We have to choose to lay down our entitlements and our attitudes. We need to repent of our selfishness. We need to put God back on the throne and take ourselves off every single day. But as we do this fight here first, then we're ready to fight for unity within the body of Christ. So how is your heart being stirred by that list that we just reviewed? Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, and unity. Which one of those words captures you right now? Would you write it down? Which word kind of struck your heart like, oh, Lord, I need your help to be better in this area. And then will you think about what relationship that word applies to? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a friend, coworker, neighbor, somebody at school. Will you write that word down, that relationship? And I want to ask you this week to bring these two things before the Lord and pray. Because God has made it possible for us to be his instruments of unity in in the places where we are planted. But we need his help to do it. And it doesn't always depend on us, right? But as much as it depends on us, we can be instruments of unity in the places where he has us. Well, Paul knows that the only way that we can keep unity in the spirit of the bond of peace is with our oneness. Now, that's the basis of what we confess as the gospel, where there's onenesses to our reality of being in Christ. And Paul is going to talk now, he's going to make seven one statements that emphasize the unity that we share as believers. So he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's just break these down really quickly so that you understand what they mean. So one body, one body is the body of Christ, the church. And the minute we say yes to Jesus, we belong to the church. We belong to the church is the body of believers around the entire world. And 
in the midst of that, we have local expressions, local families that we belong to, where we use our gifts, where we're strengthened and encouraged for our faith, where we care for one another and pray for one another, strengthening each other. And though, though we are one body, we are very diverse. We're diverse in, in race, in experience, in stories, in backgrounds, in giftings. We're very diverse. So unity is not uniformity. Unity, though, is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. Um, you know that feeling like when you're on an airplane and you meet somebody and you're, they, you find out they're a Christian and you feel like in, immediately there's this sense of like, oh, we see life through the same perspective or we, we understand the same God or we know the same Christ or we, we've studied the same passages together. And there's this instant kind of like family that's the one body. You can go to Africa and meet a sister from a different culture and in a moment feel like you've known each other for a million years because you share the same Lord. It's amazing. Then there's one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit that dwells every believer. Through the Spirit, we belong to the Lord and we belong to each other. And the Holy Spirit not only creates this unity that we share, but empowers it. He makes it possible for us to maintain it. One hope our one hope is in Christ. The hope is for now. Paul told us that earlier that we were once without hope, but now we have hope. So we have a hope for today, and we have a hope for the future when Christ returns. And so it's in this hope that we then walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We walk in obedience and faith because of this hope that we share. There's one Lord, so we confess together, one Lord. There's no other name but Jesus. Um, God has exalted Jesus to the highest place. He has given him a name above every name that one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. We have that in common. And we believe that with all the saints who have come be behind us and who will come before us. Um, this, you know what I meant. Uh, <laughs> all the saints of all time, we share that we have this one Lord, one faith, one Lord. We have one faith. So one faith is the doctrines. It's the truths that we believe about Christ from, that come from his word, from the gospel good news. These are the core doctrines of the faith that the early church protected and preserved. And there's only one truth, and it's found in his word. One baptism. We're all baptized into this common truth of the, of the death and resurrection of Christ uh, there's one baptism into the body, and there's one spirit, so it's all one. And then there's one God and Father of all. So we are all adopted into the same family. We have the same Father, who we now are able to call Abba Father, which means Daddy. And also, you know, when Jesus prayed, he prayed, Our Father, who art in heaven. It's our Father. So those are the seven onenesses that make up the essentials of the Christian faith and are the basis for the unity that we share in Christ. And this this, can you imagine, this is what the world is supposed to see when it looks at the church. Can you imagine what a testimony the church is meant to have in a world that is completely upside down from this reality, where people exalt self, where people backbite and fight for their rights, where um, God is not even a consideration, where everyone is out for each other. The church is supposed to be the place where people come together and they acknowledge these seven core onenesses that they share. And what a, what a bright testimony, what a bright witness the church is meant to be of the reality of God into a world that is lost and desperate to know him. That's why 
the truth that I gleaned from this is that oneness is our witness. Oneness is our witness. Unity is the greatest testimony of God the world will ever see. But we need God's help to live out this reality of this oneness. And Jesus knew that. And that's why before he went to the cross, when he prayed to his father, he prayed these words for us today, right now and right here. He said, he said, I do not ask for these only. So he said, I'm not just asking for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe in Jesus through the words of those who've gone before us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, Jesus knows that this oneness that we share is radically different than the world we live in, and it is meant to be a bright light to attract people who are lost and struggling to the God who loves them and provides this kind of family, the church, for them. So unity will flow naturally out of a life that is in step with Christ. Let me ask you, how is your walk Are you walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Are you growing in humility and gentleness and patience and love and forbearance and unity? Are you experiencing that peace of the Spirit in your relationships? Is there an increasingly amount of healing in places that were broken, restoration in places that need healing? Are you fighting for unity in your church? Are you fighting for it? I'm so thankful, again, for Billy Graham and the way that he answered the calling to preach and for the way he walked faithfully to the very end of his life. Literally, I felt like when he died, I was like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this man's faithful life. He walked the walk. He ran the race. But now it's our turn. It's our turn to answer this, call, this calling in our lives. It's our turn. We're being summoned into the nearness of Christ. We are the ones who need to pick up this baton to be light into the darkness of our world, to share the good news of the gospel with others who desperately need it. We need to put on the character of Christ so people don't just tune out what we say, but they look at our lives and they see something different. And then we go out and we witness oneness to the world. We have to behave as we believe, and we have to leave a legacy of faith for the next generation like Billy Graham did. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for the gift of your word and for calling out a servant to preach it so faithfully for so many years. Lord, thank you for the example of a life that's walked worthy of the calling to which you've called, and for the inspiration that we receive to want to do the same right where you've planted us, Lord, in our families, in our schools, in our churches, in our communities, in our workplaces, Lord, you've planted us as your beacon of truth and hope and power and love. And Lord, you have already given us everything we need to engage with the people around us in a spirit of humility and gentleness and patience, love, forbearance, for the sake of unity. 
Lord, we want to be a light to our world. We want to be the same kind of light that Billy Graham was to this generation. And so, Lord, we pray that his entrance into heaven only inspires the many who have heard the word of the gospel preached through his lips. Take up the baton and claim this generation now as our generation to tell others about the good news of Jesus and not just to tell. Lord, we want to live it out. We want our lives to be gospel stories that compel others to believe and receive you as Savior. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.